This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 48 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am very honored to be joined by Dana Brunetti, a fast-rising power player here in Hollywood. The 42-year-old was recently described by Vanity Fair as, quote, Hollywood's most openly disliked and secretly beloved executive, close quote. We talk about his remarkable journey from a rough-and-tumble childhood in Virginia to the U.S. Coast Guard and Wall Street to Hollywood, first as an assistant to Kevin Spacey and eventually as his producing partner at Trigger Street Productions. Brunetti's twice been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar for 2010's The Social Network and 2013's Captain Phillips, three times been nominated for the Best Drama Series Emmy for House of Cards, and also produced the blockbuster adaptation of Fifty Shades of Grey, the sequels of which he's also overseeing. On top of all of this, he's now one of the youngest people ever to run a Hollywood studio, having recently assumed the position, to the surprise of many, as president of production at Relativity Media, where we sat down to talk in his new office. Over the course of our conversation, this single dad of an adorable three-year-old girl, Estella, talks candidly about his odds-defying rise to power in Hollywood, about his interactions with many of its most colorful characters, from Harvey Weinstein to Scott Rudin to Ryan Kavanaugh, about how he reacted to the Sony hack, in which emails from and about him were leaked, about why he plans to take on the theaters and fight for day-and-day releases, and about how he thinks relativity can rise like a phoenix from the ashes and become a major force in Hollywood once again. So, without further ado, let's go to that. Dana, thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. To begin with, I just always like to ask where the guest was born and raised, and in your case, I just wonder if you can share, because I think it's sort of intertwined with that answer, where your ambition and your drive and your work ethic, where does that come from? Well, I was born and raised in Covington, Virginia, in a small paper mill town, a very small town, about four or 5,000 people. And uh, it's a town like when you drive out of town, you drive out of town. It's not like you cross a border and you go from one town into the next. And I was there until high school. And then after high school, I ended up going into uh, the Coast Guard. That sent me to New York, where I was stationed at uh, Jones Beach in Long Island, a small boat station where we did mostly uh, search and rescue and law enforcement. Yeah, so I, I think a, a lot of my drive comes from just early growing up. I had the morning paper out and the evening paper out. And then when I was 15, I went to work at a local pizzeria. And so every day after school, I worked from 4 to 12 there. And my parents, early on, as soon as I started making money, were basically like, 
you know, you can take care of your school clothes and take care of everything, which wasn't uh, too cool with me at the times. I thought I was going to be using it for radio control cars and <laughs> things like that that kids like. But it did instilled in me a drive that you have to earn what you get. And then going from that into the military, the military really disciplined me and made me more rigid in how I approach things from a business sense. Was that your idea to go into the Coast Guard or how did that come about? Because that was a big change for you. Yeah, so I was in the mountains of Virginia, so there is no Coast Guard or really much (laughs) knowledge of it. I've been quoted this before, the movie Top Gun. And when they get shot down and the Coast Guard comes and saves Goose, I was like, what is this? The Coast Guard who comes and And I just started kind of looking into it more. And my brother actually ended up going. He was the first person from my family to go into the military. He went into the Coast Guard. And after I got out of high school, about six months after just kind of screwing around, I decided to go in as well for a lot of different reasons. And he seemed to be enjoying it. But then... I went and enlisted. He left and went to the Army to be a helicopter pilot in the Army. And so I ended up going in. So I ended up being the one in the Coast Guard. He ended up being the one in in the Army. And we're still, to this day, the only two that ever went into the military from our family. Yeah, it it was a good experience. And I always thought I would end up at a small boat station doing search and rescue. But then I learned when I went to boot camp that... The Coast Guard has large ships and goes all over the world. You think the Coast Guard just guards the coast here. (laughs) It actually goes all over the world. And you really went with it all over? I got sta- luckily I got you stationed got at a small boat station, okay. which was my intention and, and what I wanted right. to do. But it's really hard duty to get because it is good duty. But the way when you go to boot camp, they at least at the time they judge you academically and physically, and how you ranked is where you got slotted to pick your billet of where you wanted to go. And I think I had two hundred and thirty some people in my boot camp class, wow. and there was like two hundred and thirty five billets. And I was like the 10th in the class, and there was only like three small boat stations. And everybody ahead of me went to stations or places closer to home or to air bases, things like that. And I was fortunate enough to have that that billet open when my name came up to pick. It was either going to be Coast Guard Station Jones Beach in Long Island or the Coast Guard Cutter Sassafras out of Honolulu, Hawaii, Ah. which was a buoy tender, so it was a work boat. But I figured... Honolulu can't be bad. (laughs) Now, did a movie also influence your next move? I understand Mm -hmm. you got into finance a little bit. Yeah, so after I finished my four years, towards the end of my enlistment, I started to study to get my Series 7 and Series 63 because of the movie Wall Street. Another movie that I enjoyed around the same time, I was watching (laughs) Top Gun and, you know, that, that era, and I was just fascinated by it and Charlie Sheen's character, Bud Fox, was like, that just looks awesome. <laughs> um, and kind of in that mindset, if it could happen in the movies, then yeah, it could happen right. for real. So I actually ended up going to work for a firm more like Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> and actually, Stratton Oakmont tried to recruit me. Really? This is I the was, one in the- I was at a competitor, and there was a lot of competitors, all these chop shops around Long Island. I was young and naive. I was 20. 23, 24 at the time, and you go into it thinking it's like you're going to be, you know, stockbroker, and you're just, you're just, you're doing what the guys in Wolf of Wall Street are doing, just and schlock. Yeah, <laughs> and it was so I, I did that for a bit, and realized that yeah, this is just not good, and ended up going to a startup digital wireless company, which we built the first digital wireless network in the Northeast. Wow, this is when the government was auctioning off the spread spectrum licensing and cell phones were still analog and before everything became digital 
And it was actually a friend of mine from the Coast Guard who another buddy of ours from the Coast Guard Reserves had gotten him a job. And I found out about this company and I was looking into it as an investment. And he was at 9X. So I said, and 9X Mobile was, which then became Verizon, Bell uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, he said that he was going to work at this new company called OmniPoint. And I said, well, what does Nick think of that? I'm like, he just got you this great job. And he's like, Nick's going there as well. So I'm like, there's something up. Right. A couple weeks later, Headhunter contacted me from after speaking with them. And I went to meet with this company. They had one cell site. It was in New Jersey. I mean, it was this was before the startups were the startups. And literally, like, doors across table, you know, for, for desk. <laughs> and uh, took a shot and, and went with it. And it did, it did very well for a startup. It became Voicestream was then bought out by T-Mobile. And right. it's now the network in the Northeast. is That's T-Mobile is the network that we built. And it was while you were working for them that you first crossed paths with Kevin Spacey? That's correct. So a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Bo Ryan, he was friends with Kevin. And I didn't really know who Kevin was. I mean, I knew seven and usual suspects, but I wasn't really paying attention to Because at this point, it's like 97? It would have been, yeah, yeah, 96, 97, yeah. yeah. Bo and I and was having some friends to uh, a sushi restaurant in Manhattan, and Kevin was one of the guests. And we ended up hanging out, and then he was, you know, somebody as you, assimilation by association. And um, during the time when we were friends, he needed a, an assistant, because he had an assistant at the time, but was staying here to oversee some things for him here in LA. And he was going to do the Iceman Cometh in, uh, in London. London. And it was supposed to be a three-month run at the Almeida Theater. Initially, I was like, I have assistants working for me. I'm not going to go be <laughs> your assistant. And uh, you know, my job was, it was fun. It was right. cool. But I came into, uh, we had this cool law space in Soho in New York. And it all got turned into cubicles. And there was one night, I don't know if I can say the guy's name, but this guy named Frank, I'll leave his last name out. Right. He was my direct supervisor at the time, and he was 40 years old. And to me then, that was, he was, he was old. <laughs> and uh, I'm 42 now. And it was probably seven, eight at night, and he was in his back corner cubicle. And I popped up to see who was still there, and he was there and clearly just like overloading what he was doing. And I just remember looking at him and being like, I don't want to be that guy when I'm 40 years old. So I called Kevin and said, hey, is the position still available? And what had happened prior to that is I asked my job for a three-month leave of absence, and they wouldn't give it to me because all the other networks were launching their digital networks, and we were very valuable, and they couldn't lose anybody. Yeah. Even MCI was around, and AT&T was building their first digital network, and they were all popping up, and Sprint was just starting to launch. They said no, and then so after that night and calling Kevin and seeing if the job was still available, I figured... I'll go and do that for three months. I have a six-month non-compete, and if they don't give me my job and I come back, I'm clearly valuable to the other networks that are building yeah. up, and I'll just bum around for three months and then go work for the competition. Yeah. We went to London, did the play at the Almeida Theater. It was a big success, did very well, and that theater is very small. It's like a 300-seat theater, and so it transferred to a bigger theater, and they were, while they were looking for a bigger theater, that's when Kevin discovered the old Vic. And it was kind of in disrepair and, and about to either be torn down or turned into a nightclub or it basically wasn't going to be a theater anymore. I don't uh-huh. remember what the exact story was. And that's when Kevin then started to make his mission that he was going to save that theater. But we ended up staying in London for a year and had the run of the play there. 
and then the play was going to transfer to Broadway. And that's when we came back to the States, had some time in between the transfer of the play to Broadway, and did American Beauty here in L.A. And that was really the first film I ever worked on. I was Kevin's assistant. And you guys wound up at the Oscars. Yeah, so it was, <laughs> I mean, it was like the best film school I could have ever had. And I was like, oh, this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, you do a film and it goes all the way and wins the best picture, best actor, best writer, right, best director. Because, right. I mean, it was a small film in the reality of things. It was like a 10 or $12 million budget. Mendy's first movie, right? Yeah, it was Sam's first uh, film. It was Alan Ball's first film. He had only been known for writing Sybil at the time. Bruce Cohen and Dan Jinks hadn't really done anything that big mm -hmm. at that, to that point. And so it was really cool for me just being an assistant because I had access to a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have on another film with more established people. And I was involved in a lot more things just by, you know, just being a sponge and soaking it up and like being a nosy Parker, just yeah. kind of getting in everybody's business and everyone was, was cool with it. And so I'm joking, but I'm not joking when I say it's probably the best film school I could have ever had. And uh, yeah, so ended up going to the Oscars the following year as Kevin's guest. And the funny thing is, 10 years later, Kevin came as my guest <laughs> to the Oscars for the social network. That's great. Which uh, we, we had a good laugh about that. It was just like, yeah, it took 10 years, but I finally got here on my own. <laughs> Let me ask you, why do you think you two hit it off as much as you did? And how did your role with each other evolve over the years? Initially, as his assistant, I kind of went into it and realized that, well, to me at least, it was a very easy job. So you go get yourself a cup of coffee, you pick him up a cup of coffee. You <laughs> take your dry cleaning, you take his dry cleaning. And it was kind of like looking out for myself and just doubling up on everything. Okay. And some of the assistance he's had in the past, and I've seen a lot of assistants that take advantage of the job or just don't do it well. And I just, I just looked at it as a great opportunity. It's like, well, if I can excel at this, this is, you know, I got, I have a shot and I have a, you know, a leg in. And um, he's very collaborative and engaging if somebody has an interest and particularly if they show an ability and, and a talent. And he stressed that to me early on and little did I know or did I see it. I just thought I was just, I was just doing my job, but I was just very eager about doing it, I think, than, than most. And so he gave me a lot of responsibilities and kind of just turned a lot of things over to me and let me run with them. And that went for about, I don't know, two and a half years. And then I kind of got burnt out. I'm just like, I'm not going to be an assistant forever. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, look, I don't want you to you know, leave. I want you to keep you involved in my team and company. He goes, so, you know, take a break. Let me know, you know, what you know, you think, and then let's see if we can't figure something else out. And I was back in New York, and then and 9-11 happened. Mm. And uh, I, I was there um, in, in New York. Oh, yeah, I've seen your You took footage of it. Yeah, you were there. crazy footage. Actually, wow. there was a phone call with me to Kevin in that footage. Wow. I called and I woke him up. He was in L.A., and I, I woke him up to tell him to turn on the TV. Yeah, yeah. And I was on the roof of, of my building, because the first plane came right over, and I heard him. I was like, what the hell is that? Yeah. But I remember there was, so he and I had had a conversation months, a year or so earlier, where he had this frustration where he, if somebody came up to him in a coffee shop and wanted to give him a screenplay or script, that he couldn't take it. Because if he did anything near that, if he was involved as an actor or producer or director, anything that was somehow close to that, that there's a, a legal 
liability or legal ramification, potential ramification that can come from that. It was very frustrating to him that because he's at where he is now, or at least at where he was then, mm -hmm. that he can no longer take those over the fence type of submissions as it referred to him and he kind of had cut that pipeline off. And it was a lot of first time filmmakers and first time directors who were responsible for him getting to where he was. And he just found that odd and ironic and wanted to find a way to change that. Mm -hmm. so like we're talking about Alan Ball and Sam yeah. Mendes. And if you look at Usual Suspects with, with Brian and Chris McQuarrie, you know, that, that was really their first screenplay and Brian's second film, I think. Yeah. So I had come up with this idea for TriggerStreet.com. So we had a website, but it was like a company website that really wasn't uh, doing anything. Obviously. People should know Trigger Street's the name of the production company that it wasn't in place at that time. It was in place. It was. But it wasn't really doing anything. Yes. There was a few employees there, but just was kind of optioning a book here or there and nothing really happening yeah. with it really as a production company. Still very new. There was a legal case that I had read about that when you click on the I agree, and I think it was a Microsoft software thing that held up in court. And so that got me thinking. I was like, well, wait, what if we put it online? And, if, and it was a really simple idea of just, why don't I build a website? People come up to Kevin, and they want to get him a screenplay, or if they want to submit to Trigger Street Productions, then we just direct them to TriggerStreet.com and say, sorry, I can't take it, but you can get it to us this way. And that was how the idea started. And at the beginning of that, they would, rather than us sending them the document to sign and then send back with their screenplay, they could just go there and upload it as a PDF, and then we could access it from that point. And another thing people were doing at the time is a lot of VHS tapes of their short films would get sent around. And then bad copy after bad copy would get made of that. And those would get distributed around town. Like Lucas and Love, or you know, there, there was a lot of short films that went around that people you know, would use to, as a way to break in. And at the time, there was iFilm and Atom Films. And you had to send in a hard copy, and then they digitized it. And it could be weeks or month or whatever before it actually would make it up to the site, if it made it up to the site. Yeah. And you had to have all these clearances and everything to get it done. And I had a um, meeting with Rob Glazer from Real Networks. And he was just about to launch the Helix engine, which I remember at the time, because we launched with this, and we were like kind of brag about it. And we were like, you can upload your short film, and within 10 minutes, <laughs> anybody in the world can access it and watch it. But that was like revolutionary yeah, yeah, at the yeah. time. Because this was years before YouTube, it was years before Facebook. 9-11 happened, and it was this weird time in New York, because I lived in New York for a number of years. But it was a weird time where it was super quiet, because all the power downtown was turned off. But then there was also the dust was like when snow hits, it absorbs the sound. And then there was also, because the power was out, there was no hum that you would get from so much stuff that you never realized, from vent units or just the ambient sound of a city. And there was no traffic, and it was just pedestrian. So you would hear, you could walk down the street and hear your footsteps. But one thing that really struck with me was how everybody was asking how you were doing, how each other was doing, and doing anything they could to help everybody else. This is in New York City. Yeah. And it just made me think, I'm like, well, everyone's sort of got some good in them. And if, if people in New York can get that, become <laughs> so small town. Right. And that started to resonate with me a little bit for TriggerStreet.com. I was like, well, why don't we just, people can put up their screenplay and we'll let, rather than it just being for us, this can be much bigger. And let's let other people re-rate and review. 
And that was the general idea of it. And that's how we ultimately ended up launching. But it was funny because somebody from CAA called me prior to us launching and said, uh, hey, we think we can get, I think it was like Coca-Cola or somebody to sponsor this site that you're building. And at first, I didn't know how they knew I was building the site. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that would be great. And I hadn't even thought about bringing a sponsor in or doing anything like that. We were with William Morris at the time. So I contacted William Morris and said, hey, how about you know one of your clients, corporate, you know, maybe think about them sponsoring it. And they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. And I said, well, look, CAA is bringing me Coca-Cola to sponsor the site. And their response was, CAA is bringing you Coca-Cola to sponsor the site because they want Kevin Spacey as a client. I go, that may very well be true. I go, but if they're going to do that to get Kevin Spacey as a client, what are you going to do to keep him as a client? <laughs> Did <laughs> they come through? Well, yeah, but they yeah. still kind of thought about me as like as Kevin's assistant. Right, they're like, they're this guy like, got some balls. Yeah. <laughs> so I went in and met with their corporate team, and they gave me a list of all their clients, the corporate clients, and I went down and I just kind of marked the ones that sort of made sense. And it was in alphabetical order, and at the top of the list was Anheuser-Busch. And so that was the first meeting that got set up. And I went to New York and met at Bush Media in a conference room. We just had like a wireframe of the site design. Only had one video on it just to demonstrate mm -hmm. how it worked. And halfway through the meeting, they stopped me and they said, we're in, we wow. want to do a three-year step deal with you. And then, we were all, then it turned into a much bigger platform than what we anticipated because now there was funding behind it. And so we set up offices in New York kicked up the, the development on it and uh, turned it into what it ultimately became, which was a platform and really a social network uh, without us knowing what the term social network right, didn't even right, exist then. Right. But basically made a platform for undiscovered screenwriters and filmmakers to upload their work and get feedback and get constructive criticism. And that was your primary focus for a while? Yeah, that was the whole focus and where we really honed it and where it ultimately ended up being. And some people did use it to find material and to find new talent. And we designed it for the community to run it. And so it, it self-ran. And after it was designed and done, it was just us maintaining it. Yeah. And it was, wasn't much for us to do. So I started looking at other projects in the New York office. And I got a documentary called Uncle Frank that needed to be finished. So we jumped onto that and produced that and helped finish that. We got another documentary at PBS called America Rebuilds, a year at Ground Zero. And then I found um, I had known about the MIT card counters through the guy who introduced Kevin and I, Bo, and because he lived outside of Boston in Concord. And a friend of his went to MIT and told him about this story. And he had told me about it like two years before. And I always said, that's an amazing yeah. story. Because we were in Vegas shooting Pay It Forward. And I was still Kevin's assistant mm -hmm. at the time. And I got a bit of a blackjack addiction. And I started to realize by reading things that it was a beatable game. And so I started to learn to count cards and studying it. So when I heard this idea about these MIT students had gone there and done this, I'm like, this is amazing. But I was still an assistant at the time. Right. And not a writer, not anything, but I'm like, this should be a movie. And I was walking from my apartment in Tribeca to my office in Tribeca, and there was this little newsstand, and there was a Wired magazine that had just come out. and on the front cover said the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions. I'm like, that's the story. And so I Googled Ben Mesrick, who I didn't realize was a book. I just thought it was an article. Yeah. And I hadn't even read it. Yeah. I just saw who wrote the, the right. article and Googled him, got a 617 area code through Google. And so I called and left a message. And he didn't believe 
me that I was calling, so he Googled me. And right. again, this is before people Googled right. each other. <laughs> and he contacted me and said, um, I have the book. And I'm like, oh, there's a book. And I'm like, well, who has it? And then that led into a uh, fruitful relationship between the, the two of us. And that ultimately led to the movie 21 and then Ugly Americans that set up at DreamWorks initially and it kind of bounced around town and then Rig, which was at Summit and kind of bounced around. And then I sold a lot of his projects. And then it wasn't until 21 came out after that because it was, we originally sold it to MGM prior to the Sony and everybody buying them. It then got moved over to Sony, so it was like six years before it finally got made. So as that came out, that came out in 2008, and then it was like 2007, 2009, I said, what's your next book? And he said, I think it's going to be about the start of Facebook. <laughs> Let me stop you for one second, because when you first started interacting with him, I think you were saying you're still an assistant. So in what way were you able to go into business with him? Did you have to convince Kevin that this was a guy that was worth working with? I was, so no, I wasn't. I was an assistant, but I mean, I might as well Ben. Uh, so no, I contacted Ben and, and clearly dropped Kevin's name, <laughs> and that's why he why had not? to Google yeah, me yeah. to see if I was who right. I was. And Kevin had a lot of trust in me, and he, my instincts, he believed in, and we we shared a lot of the same instincts. He had a, some that were completely different, and I had some completely different, but down the middle, they were very similar. And so I had told him about this story. And he thought it was a great idea for a film as well. And then when Ben and I ended up meeting the first time, I had introduced him to Kevin. And I always use Kevin as my arrow. If I wanted to get somebody, I'd fire him at them. And then uh, he kind of opens the door right. and then I'd kick it in right, and, right. And, and handle it. And that's that's been my main advantage in this business is just being able to use him for the first few years right. until I kind of got on my own feet. And he's happy to do it because you've chosen to shoot him in good directions. Right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably sometimes not in the best directions, no. but you never heard about those. They never came to right. anything. But <laughs> when they when they were in the right directions, they panned out pretty well. Right. So 21 comes out, does very well. Mm -hmm. And in between that and Social Network, which you mentioned would be the next thing, I believe the release, at least, of Fanboys was in between them. I that was so. a project that you had been very passionate about for a while. And then I guess for the first time as a producer, really encountered some of the frustrating stuff that can happen <laughs> in this business, right? Can you synopsize what exactly <laughs> happened there? Well, why I wasn't sure about if it released in between, <laughs> they're aware, because I think it still might be screening every year at Comic-Con, because <laughs> we had a screening, I think, for three different years at Comic-Con. And we should tell people, it's about Star Wars fanatics, right. right? So the idea was it takes place before George Lucas announces that it's uh, The Phantom Menace is going to be another year away or whatever, two years away, <laughs> and these four Star Wars nerds that grew up on it and this is going to be the first film since the return of the jedi they're like oh you know it's another year before this comes out and then it turns out one of the group gets cancer and so they hatch a plan to drive across country break into skywalker ranch and still cut of the film to show their friend before he dies right. simple great idea great premise and has all the star wars fun in it and so the weinsteins ended up buying it we went out to Albuquerque. I think we were one of the first films to go to Albuquerque and, and really take advantage of the tax credits there. I think I've, I've raced a lot of this from my memory because it was such it. <laughs> I mean, it's very well documented a lot of right. places, so maybe you can help me along with some of this therapy. Yeah, so the director started having differences with Harvey, and being the producer, I got stuck in the middle of it. And uh, it was not an easy battle. And it was 
really frustrating because it really had a chance to be the next Star Wars film, and it could have done very well. And it got to the point, though, where it was just getting cut up a million different directions. There were so many different versions of it. There were so many different, it was start and stop, start and stop, test screening this one, test screening that one. But what was the most disappointing is the first cut that we did, that we tested, tested very well, and Harvey was there and said, this is the best experience I've had in a movie theater in ages. He goes, you know, we're putting on 2,000 screens, and this is going to be great. And something happened in the interim that we then were going to do some changes. And the changes ended up to be that they wanted to cut the cancer out, and then ended up being some reshoots with another director, and then they brought in another producer, and then just it went on and on, and the reshoots ended up costing more than our entire budget for the film and really never got used, and it just turned into the disaster that it ended up being. But... I guess if there's a silver lining, it was a very good learning experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A learning experience, a lot in what not to do, but also what could possibly go wrong because we had something that could have been fantastic from business sense, could have done very well yeah. also, and it just uh, didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, you're still working with Mesrich on this other idea of his for a movie about beginning of Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I understand from what I've read that you know, the holdup was really just getting the story of this other guy who disputed that Zuckerberg solely founded it, right? Yeah. So you were really instrumental in solving that problem. Right. Well, it wasn't really a holdup. It's been, you know, as he was going in and trying to find the rest of the story, it was a friend of Eduardo's that contacted him and told him about this. And he couldn't get Eduardo to really talk to him. So I invited Eduardo to this, like, mini premiere in Boston. And... After the movie, we went to the after party, and uh, he got stuck outside the rope. And I'm like, nope, he's good. He's with us. And I pulled him in and then into the, the little quote-unquote VIP area inside mm -hmm. the, the party. And um, it was actually it was the first time he was photographed. It was me, him, and Scott Lambert. So the photographer came over, and he's like, oh, that's Scott Lambert from William Morris Agency, and you know, you're Dana Bernetti, producer. And he's like, who's the other guy? I'm like, that's Eduardo Saverin, who's co-founder of Facebook. And it ran in a Boston paper. I can't remember which one, but it ran in one of the Boston papers. And I think that was the first time that he was ever like, publicly mentioned or shown as the founder of Facebook. Mm -hmm. And then that night, there was an after party at this club downstairs from where we were. And uh, he liked Asian women, and he liked to drink. <laughs> and so I immediately introduced him to one of Tanya's wife's friends, and got a bottle of whiskey on the table. <laughs> he started in. And <laughs> exactly. then it, it continued kind of across the country. Yeah, so th he started to talk to Ben a little bit, but still wouldn't give him everything that he needed. And his friend who had told Ben the story really wanted to come to the uh, 21 premiere in Vegas, the proper premiere. So I told him, I'm like, all right, I'll have tickets for you, but you better bring Eduardo with you. And he's like, yeah, no, he's coming, he's coming. But then there was like some question whether or not Eduardo would actually come. And I said, okay, you have the tickets, but if you showed up, show up without Eduardo, I'm not giving them to you. <laughs> and so I make sure that he made Eduardo right, come. Right. And so, again, the same type of thing happened afterwards. There was a party, and I got him into the VIP area with us and then put him in with Kevin and Ben and myself and some other, like, I think Kate Bosworth and a few yeah. others, and kind of just wooting. And that's when he then started talking to Ben and get, he gave Ben enough that for him to continue writing yeah. the, uh, the I don't remember if it was the proposal or the story. No, it was the it was the proposal still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that gave us the the ability to get to a fourteen page proposal, which 
we ultimately sold to Sony, but it wasn't as easy as you would think. It took a lot of convincing. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a late night call with them on a Sunday night. I remember I was at Robert Lucchetti's house because... Um, director of 21. Yeah, yeah. He was director of 21. I don't remember if it was after the second weekend of 21, but anyways, I'd been drinking. I was at his house. It was like eight o'clock at night. I called Ben because the studio had contacted yeah. me and then they said, hey, we, we want to do this because we were about to take it out. They had it for like a week or two and then we were about to take it out the following Monday. And so they were trying to tie it up before we did that because I, I didn't have a first look with Sony at the time. Mm -hmm. So I called Ben, I go, hey, the studio wants to get on with us. And he's like, it's like 11.15 here or whatever. I'm like, I know, but don't worry about it. <laughs> and he goes, well, what do they want to hear? I go, they want to hear the pitch again. And he's like, well, it's still the same as it was. And we didn't have an ending. And he goes, well, it's still the same you know, thing. We still don't know what the ending is. I'm like, I know, but just we're just going to pitch the same thing again. We're just going to do the same thing. He's like, okay, fine. I go, oh, there's this one thing. He's like, what's that? I'm like, I'm drunk. <laughs> so you have to do all the talking. <laughs> so he was like, oh, great. Oh my God. Um, and he's already a bit of a nervous Nelly as it is. Right. <laughs> and so we all get on the phone and uh, Ben starts his pitch. And when you're pitching or you're doing a story, you know beat by beat what he's going to say. And it got to a moment where he paused and then there was that awkward silence. And it's like, he, I think he forgot where he was or something, something happened, but it was that awkward pause. And so to fill that void, I just started talking. And in my drunken ambition, I just kept on going. And then went, and that's the movie. And Doug Belgrad went, all right, that's great. We want it. We'll have BA call in the morning and you know, we'll get into the deal. So I'm like, all right, great, fantastic, Ben, great, fantastic. I hung up, called Ben back, and he was like, that was amazing. <laughs> and he goes, you should do every pitch drunk. That was awesome. <laughs> and to this day, I have no idea what I said. Where you pulled it out I from. I don't know yeah. what I did or what I said, but it, it clearly worked to get totally. on to buy it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, on that project and on the next one, or one of the next ones, with uh, Captain Phillips, you ended up collaborating with somebody who's a character in this town, Scott Rudin, <laughs> and he's not even really in this town, he's in New York, <laughs> yeah. but he's sort of, in the way that Harvey Weinstein is very press-friendly, he's very press-averse, I think, yes. but there are stories, and I just wonder what your experience was. He obviously is very effective at what he does, but also a character, like I said. Yeah. So what was your experience with Scott Rudin? <laughs> well, so I'd never dealt with him before. I just, I just knew what you know, people know that haven't dealt with him. And I got a call from the studio about a week or two later that was, we have a problem. And I was like, well, what's that? And they 
go, well, Scott Rudin pitched this to Amy and she bought it. And I was like, well, I, I was totally confused because A, I controlled the material and B, the studio already owned it. <laughs> we were already doing a deal with them. And I go, well, that's not a problem because you can't do that. I go, why doesn't somebody let her know that A, the studio already <laughs> controls it and Scott can't sell something he doesn't control. The first rule of producing is control the material. Right. I control the material. He can't sell my project, especially <laughs> to the same studio right, I already right, sold right. it to. So I was just like, sounds like a problem for you guys, not for me. <laughs> so this turned into, what I then found out is he had Aaron Sorkin. And so that changed it up a bit. But I still wasn't going to just be like, all right, let Scott Rudin take this and it be his project. Yeah. And uh, it started a bit with, you know, going back and forth, but it worked out much better for me with my deal because I, I had more leverage to be able to negotiate. And, and it was Mike DeLuca who I had done 21 with. And Mike's always been super cool and good with me and very protective of me as well. And so we were able to work a deal where all three of us would be involved to do it and Scott Braunlong, Aaron Sorkin, so that made it cool with yeah. me. But we did butt heads initially uh, because it just immediately became the Scott Rudin project. And, you know, in the press, it was written that it was his project. And at the time, I was still a young, scrappy producer trying to make my name, at, you know, and this I knew was going to be a good opportunity for me. And I fired off an email to him, like, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, West Coast time. And I CC'd everybody in the email. And I basically just put my foot down. And uh, emails started flying back at me from people that were involved, that were CC'd, just to me, not to the whole thread. And then my phone started ringing, and it was basically like, what the hell are you doing? You're going to start World War III. <laughs> like, you don't do that with right. Scott Rudin. <laughs> and it was enough to shake me up a little bit. Normally, I'm just like, ah, screw it, I don't care. And whatever I said in the email is true, and so I don't care. But it was enough that where like Mike called and was like, what the hell are you doing? And the studio <laughs> was like, what the hell? So I literally was like, oh, all right, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And I started Googling Scott Rudin just because you knew the stories, but then I just started reading different stories. And I'm like, oh, great. This is <laughs> like, I just totally screwed myself. But I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm going, if I'm going to war, I'm going to war. Right. But I was not going to be steamrolled on this project. And I went to bed, I didn't sleep very well. And then it was probably like 3.30, 4 in the morning, because it was 6.30, 7 o'clock, New York time where he was. My phone buzzed and I picked it up and it was from Scott Rudin. I was like, oh, here we go. And so I opened <laughs> it up. And it actually was very cordial and said, I completely get it. That wasn't me doing it. The press wrote what they wrote, which being where I am now, I get it because yeah. they will, you know, there's other people involved in my projects as well that don't get mentioned. And it's not like I'm going and speaking right. to them. It's just, and he was decent about it. I would, I would say he's super cool or whatever, but I mean, he was just, he, he did not react the way that everyone thought right. that he'd react. Right. And from that point forward, we got along pretty well and he kind of stayed out of my hair and I stayed out of his hair as much as possible. And he is, he's a genius. I mean, he's, he's very good at what he does. And what he was great at, I let him run with that. I was on set here with Fincher, and you know the production was going on out here. Although with Fincher, you don't need to be there. I mean, he's a right. fine old machine, and you just kind of try to stand back and blend into the wall as much as you can and not <laughs> screw anything right. up. How did you and Scott end up reteaming for Captain Phillips? It was just... So somebody from his office had called Sony 
the week of Thursday that the captain was still hostage. And Mike and I had been talking about it, and because it was all over the news, and this was like the first test of Obama. And so, you know, Fox News was going crazy, saying everyone was going crazy about this. And I told Mike, I'm like, yeah, this is an amazing story, but this, you know, I don't think he's going to make it out alive. And I go, and that's not a movie that I want to make. And he's like, yeah, you're probably right. He's like, that's more of a Sundance kind of film. <laughs> so then Easter Sunday came around, and he, he was rescued. And one of Scott's guys had called Sony with it that Thursday, and they passed. They had rights already, or they were saying hypothetically? Yeah. Yeah. And they basically had said the same thing that I said. Yeah. I'd pass. Then Easter Sunday rolls around, and he's rescued they take the shots and you know it was dramatic you yeah know, very and i literally was going to my phone to call mike and it was ringing of him calling <laughs> me going did you see that oh my god is insane <laughs> and so i went he goes do your thing and we got to get this and so i started my quest to get in touch with the captain so i started with marisk and then ended up with a long story short ended up with family representative on the day he was rescued. No, I, well, I called his house the night that he was rescued. <laughs> and I really, I'm, I'm like, I'm a total asshole. I'm, I'm, I, this is like, it definitely felt like... He wasn't even up. back in his house yet, right? I, he wasn't even off the Navy right. ship. <laughs> he was like, he, he literally had just been, you know, he right. just had three guys get shot right. around him. But I was like, you know what, if I don't do it, somebody else is. Right. And you have to be a hawk sometimes, you know, to get things like this. And... First time I called, the phone picked up and hung right back up. So I was like, and then I called again. And then they basically said, I'm not taking any calls right now. But then that, I ultimately ended up contacting a family representative. And she then met with me and DeLuca in New York. And then that led to a lot of discussions and meetings. That ultimately led to me getting a meeting with the uh, captain in Vermont. And so I, I remember I called Sony. And I said, well, can I go and just say that you guys are interested. I have to have something. Because again, I, didn't even, I still didn't have a first look with Sony. And they finally said, okay, yeah, you can say that we're interested. So I used that and, and I said, otherwise I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go to one of the other studios and find out. Nobody else was interested. Right. But they didn't know. They that. didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to, uh, me and Mike were supposed to fly to New York and then on to Vermont. Mm-hmm. And then Mike had something come up last minute. He couldn't make it. And so now I'm going on my own. I'm like, crap, I need to bring out the big guns. And my big gun was Kevin. So I called him in London. And I was thinking, well, if he can't come, then maybe I can get him to call the captain or do something. And I said, hey, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just here, kind of hanging out the house, unpacking. He's like, I've had stuff packed up for ages and finally getting to it. I'm like, you're not working. I don't play or whatever. You know, the play had just ended. And he usually would take off on vacation or do something. He's like, no, I'm just kind of hanging out for the next few days. And he's like, why? What's up? I'm like, do you know the captain was just rescued? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm flying tomorrow to meet him. I go, can you get on a plane and meet me in New York? And we're going to take another plane and go to Vermont. And he's like, all right, yeah, I guess. (laughs) And I couldn't believe that he agreed to do that, but he did. That would be the big ask. And then the follow-up would be, well, can you call him? Or when when I'm there, I'll call you and put you on. And you can talk to him and help work that over for me. And so we flew to Vermont, had dinner with him and his family. Being that I was in the Coast Guard, I thought, I'm like, I got this. <laughs> you could just drop a few references. Yeah, no, I'd be like, and I was like, well, you know, I was, I was in the Coast Guard myself. <laughs> and uh, 
And his response was like, I hate the Coast Guard. <laughs> <laughs> no explanation? Well, I didn't even, I, didn't, I was just going to drop this subject. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to bring that up. And I'm like, so anyways, hey, Kevin, do a Jack Lemon impression. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was like my edge going in there, I right. thought, was, you know, where I'd be able to have like right. a second hand with him. And so by the end of the dinner, we all got along great. And he's like, this sounds great. Love to do this with you. So went back. And I now had him. And... I then had to convince Sony to go forward with it. And they had apprehension because they had passed on Scott. And so I was like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but that, because that was a different movie on Thursday that I'm bringing you now. But I can get where you're coming from because you passed on that already. I go, so why don't we just do the same deal that we did on social network? And we'll put the band back together and, right. and you know, we'll go forward that way. So then Scott was back in business with me and Mike again, and it was another paid off again for us. So it was a good team. Can you confirm, I don't know if this is true, but if it is, it's kind of funny that you're out on the set in the middle of the ocean, and that was the first time you heard about Fifty Shades of Grey? Well, yes and no. <laughs> there, there's actually, there is a funny story. Right? It wasn't while we were in the ocean that I heard about it. I was in London we were shooting the interior of the lifeboat scene, so we were on a stage on a gimbal. And I was riding out to the stage as NCA called, and it was Matt Del Piano. It was like, you know, there's not anybody on, um, or actually, no, I think it was Carter. Somebody called me mm -hmm. and told me that there wasn't a producer on Fifty Shades of Grey. And I was kind of like, yeah, so? <laughs> and they're like, well, the author lives in London, and you're in London. And I was like, so that's where you're connecting me and saying that I probably should produce Fifty Shades of Grey. Because and up to that point, what did you think of Fifty Shades of Grey? What everybody else thinks. Right. It's like it's, you know, this book for women that's, you know, BDSM and, you know, this romantic novel. And it's like, what? And I said to them, I go, what of the movies right. I have done makes you think I'm the guy for this movie? Which, by the way, just to quote you back. Didn't you describe the Mesrich projects as dicklit, yeah. which is about as I assume it's that's completely. the opposite of chicklit. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's part of again yeah. why I had you know the types of movies that I did, and so they're like, well, just think about it, and you know, you should try to take a meeting with the author while you're in London. So I'm like, all right, whatever, I don't, I don't know, we'll see. And so I get out of the car, I walk into the production offices. Mike's desk is sitting next to mine. I go to him, I go, hey, you know this book, Fifty Shades of Grey? He goes, yeah, I read it, I loved it. I'm like, you did? and Because I hadn't read the yeah, book. Yeah, I only yeah. knew what I knew. And I go, is there a movie in it? And he goes, yeah, there's a great movie. I'm like, well, what is it? And uh, he started to tell me the movie. And I'm like, wow, that's actually, that's pretty good. I'm like, you read it, right? And he goes, yeah, I'm a pervert. Of course I did. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Right. And so I said to him that CA was trying to set this meeting up with me and the author. I go, well, why don't come with me? I go, it's going to be a week or so away, so I'm going to read the book in the meantime, and then let's just go in there and give that take. I like that take. I, you know, and if I feel the same after I read it, maybe we'll adjust it. And it ended up not being with EL, but it ended up being with her agent. And we got to the meeting, and she basically told us that they already knew who they were going to go with. And so we basically were late, and we're going to miss it. So I was like, well, crap. So we're here. Make lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what else you got? And so she starts walking me through her other clients and their projects, things that were available. Yeah. And then the conversation circled back around to 50. And she goes, well, how would you guys, you know, do the movie? And started asking us questions about the movie. And we started sort of going into our pitch. 
And then they started engaging. I remember tapping Mike under the table like, let's go into pitch mode, let's just yeah. pitch it. And so we pitched it, and at the end of the meeting, she goes, well, the battlefield's still open. She's like, we'll throw your name into the hat. That was so weird. Yeah. So we left, and we get into the car, and we're just like, can you imagine if we got Fifty Shades of Grey? <laughs> we laughed, and we drove off to set. Right, right. And then Mike was going back and forth, and he was spending a lot more time in, in L.A., and I was kind of staying with the production. And then he met with E.L. here. Apparently, that meeting didn't go very well either. I don't know why, but right. just from what I've heard since from E.L. Right. and Mike. And then we were at dinner one night in Virginia Beach. We're now shooting the Navy scenes. And Mike gets a call while we're, it was me, Paul Greengrass, and some of the other, like, DP. And, and Mike gets a call, and he's very excited and anxious, and he's, like, down at the table. And, oh, and I, we had, like, the captain of the ship was with us. And I'm like... <laughs> bumping him like you're being rude and it was like the head of Marisk and so he hangs up he hangs up the phone and he's acting a little weird through the dinner and we're walking back to the hotel with everybody and he goes hey he goes I need to speak to you so I'm like all right I'm gonna go to my room and I'll be up to your room in a minute so his door was open and I walked in he was sitting at his desk and he turned around to me and he goes we got it and I go we got what he goes we got the book I go we got 50 shades of gray and he was like yeah he goes, but no one knows yet, and we can't tell anybody. So I'm like, oh, my God. And I was like, this is, this is incredible. Yeah. So the next day, we're out on this Navy destroyer, like 10 miles offshore, and we're, like, kind of doing patterns and circles in the water. And as we kind of come closer into land, our phones would beep with, you know, missed emails. It would, you know, download, and there was an email of, the press had got wind of it, they knew it, and they were going to run that we were the producers on, on the project. And Universal was going ahead with it. And now we both had first look deals, I think, at Sony. Mm -hmm. He did at least. Yeah, no, and I did too. And we had to get released. Sony had no idea that <laughs> we had been chosen for this. We hadn't had time to even and talk about it. And they would technically have the option of doing it if they wanted to still, or how would that work? No, no, Universal already had it. Did you know that in working with them, you would have to sort out with Sony? Like yeah, that? yeah, yeah. But uh, so, but we thought we were going to have some time because <laughs> yeah. this was the night before. Right, it was right, the next right. day that, and we knew that we were going to have to <laughs> right. call a studio and get them to let us out of uh, our deal to to do this. And most of the execs were in Paris on Spider-Man, so we couldn't reach them. We're on a Navy ship that's getting signal in and out. And so we got to get a hold of Universal to get them to stop from announcing it because we didn't want to have egg on everybody's face because if Sony found out about it in the trades, that wasn't going to, and then they could have just said no, and then that would have put egg on our face and, and Universal's face. And so we literally, we got all of the captain. We're like, we have to make a phone call. This is an emergency. <laughs> and he's like, is it an emergency, emergency? I'm like, well, in Hollywood, this would be an emergency. <laughs> and so he gave us his sat phone to call Hollywood, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we used it to call Universal to get them to stop, to not, you know, to hold off the press because we had to delay. And then once we got back into shore, we were finally able, it was the next day we were able to reach Amy, and she was totally gracious with us and wished us the best of luck with That's it. Right. And thought that, you know, she was very complimentary about us being the producers on it and glad that it was in good hands and very, very graceful and classy about it. And then we were off to the races. Just one sort of 
free association and follow up about that. It was not that long after that what happened with the Sony hack happened and mm -hmm. obviously affected her, affected Rudin, affected a lot of people. I think some of your emails may have been mentioned, but you were not like one of the headlines of no. this because you didn't do anything too crazy. No, I think my worst thing was because, of course, I went in and searched my name just to see what was right. out there. And it was like something came up for Captain Phillips and it was, I didn't need a car service to one of these events that I was self-driving. I'm right. like, that's not bad. That looks good. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> but how do you think, I mean, obviously it had a very serious impact on a lot of people, a lot of things in this town. How do you think Hollywood handled that? Um, I don't know, it's, it's touchy. I mean, in a time period that we live in, I mean, look, we've always said that if don't put something in an email unless you're okay with it being on the front page of the New York Times. And that was definitely a good lesson in that. I'm conflicted on the whole with everybody's emails being exposed and the press kind of going in and, and doing that. But I also get where that, because if they weren't, somebody else was going to. And it was just, it was a treasure trove for that. It was unfortunate, I guess, is the best thing that yeah. I could say. And it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And it's it's all there in black and white. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, there's not much that can be said. And, and look, with some of the people, like, I think Scott Rudin got off the easiest. <laughs> Because you read his emails and it's like, yeah, that's that's Scott Rudin. <laughs> <That's what you laughs> it was just like, I think he just right. he skated right through right. that. With, on, on, he was. It's all about who was behaving differently than you would expect. Yeah, right? yeah. That's that's what I think was the most revealing thing about that is everybody they all act the same, right? And everybody is a bit of an asshole at times, and everyone's snarky right. and bitchy and takes jabs at people. And I mean, we've done it on our own projects. Me and Mike do it to each other, and we know that. And as soon as somebody walks out of the room, people will start saying snarky things and that they would never say when they're in the room. I think that's in any business. Yeah. This is just a much more high-profile business, so therefore it was got a lot more scrutiny, and particularly amongst us in the business. We all paying a lot of attention to it. But yeah, it was very revealing, but yeah. I don't think it was surprising yeah. too much that, you know, oh, there were some crazy things said right. in some emails. So... We're heading into Emmy season, and you know, if you decide to retire tomorrow, one of the it may be the first thing that people would have in the headline is this guy is largely responsible for House of Cards, which is largely responsible for Netflix, which has changed the Netflix success, which has changed the way we all go about our lives in a lot of ways, at least in the entertainment side. So I just wonder, how did you first hear about House of Cards, and why do you think you responded to it? So first, going back to the email hacks, because yes. one of the ones that came up was one of the other producers that was involved in it, and I came across this email of him because I was misquoted in the press about my role in House of Cards, so I just want to be very clear okay. about that. <laughs> so I wasn't the one responsible for House of Cards. As every production, no one is responsible no. for them. It's a collaborative effort. My responsibility in that was convincing Kevin for us to do it with Netflix and getting Kevin involved with it to begin with. And how that started was while we were shooting Social Network, me and Fincher were talking in between setups and he asked me about House of Cards, whether I knew about it and whether Kevin would ever be interested in doing television. And when I say whether I knew about it, meaning the original British series, yes. which I was aware of from when I first worked with Kevin in, in London. London yeah. And I had been pushing Kevin towards television for probably three or four years prior to that, much to the chagrin of his reps. 
because movie stars don't do television. Don't do TV, right. But I could see that's where it was going, and more so that the types of material and projects and characters that Kevin likes to be involved in and play were going more towards television. They had a lot more depth than, than where features really were, and because studios were going more towards the bigger tentpole movies that lacked a lot of that. And so we actually got close on a few television deals years out, and with some of the bigger networks as well. And then so this came along, and, and when Fincher said that, I said, yeah, I've actually been pushing him towards that. Let me talk to him about it. I got the DVDs again, watched them again, got them to Kevin. Kevin said, yes, it'll be interesting. Next time in town, let's go and talk. So we were shooting now in Warner Hollywood, and so I had Kevin come by set, and then we went over to Jones, sat in the back corner booth, and Fincher said, we want to do this, but we want to do this where we call the shots and we get to do this our way. So the script was developed and written without anybody knowing. He told us about Bo Williman, and we only knew him from Farragut North. Mm-hmm. Kevin had a meeting with him probably a year or so later, but we let them go off and write the script. And then when we took the script out, it went out around town with, you know, it surprised everybody with Kevin Spacey and David Fincher, which stuff like that's happening more and more now. Yeah. And there was, I call it this throwaway meeting with Netflix because it's, and I wasn't there. I want to be very clear I wasn't there <laughs> because Netflix had announced a couple months prior to that that they weren't going to do original content. And so it was odd that they took this meeting, but we figured we could use it as leverage if they right. made an offer. Because at the time, they're still like, DVD mailings, right? Was, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, they were they were starting to stream, but they had a very slim. Cat, but what they were known for is for DVDs. This was prior to Flickster, or was it was it Flickster or whatever though? I forget, but yeah, I know what you mean. when they yeah. started, when they yeah. tried to do the name change and right. set up a oh, separate, right. yeah, the, the separate and, companies, right? Yeah. yeah, and it was a huge debacle. It got to a point we were pitching. It looked like we were going to go with HBO, but they wouldn't commit to anything more than a pilot. And they actually used luck as an example. They're like, we didn't even commit to a pilot with that. And look, and that's going. And then we end up canceling it. So it was like, it was pretty, it's pretty funny to look back right, on now. Right. And I was at Kevin's house on a Saturday. And we thought we'd go into the next week announcing that we would be with HBO. And Fincher called Kevin. Kevin was out getting coffee. And he comes back. And he said, Fincher just called and needs to speak to the both of us. And so we call him back from Kevin's place. And... I'm on one side of the room, Kevin's on the other side of the room, and he tells us you know, about the meeting went down and they made an offer, and it was a really good offer. And it was, basically it was $100 million in two seasons, and guaranteed, and they, they were buying it. And Kevin's like, wait, so we're gonna do this rate to DVD? <laughs> and obviously I knew about streaming, I've been very pro that for, yeah. for a while. Going back and, to this was TriggerStreet.com. That's right. And I had always talked to Kevin about that as well. But he had been living in London at the time. So he had only known Netflix as a DVD company. Right. He didn't know about this new streaming right. aspect that they were starting. And so I told him, I go, Kevin, just say yes, and I'll explain it all to you when we hang up. And he said, Dana's telling me to say yes, so let's do it. So I hung up, and then I go, look, everything we've been talking about, of everything streaming online and how the distribution will be in the future. We have a chance to do it now. It's going to happen in five, 10 years, but we have a chance to accelerate that. And if we do it and do it right, then that will happen a lot sooner than anybody will ever expect. 
little did we know how much it would change it. Blew um, it up, right? Yeah, and I mean, it, it was a game changer in, in, in every sense of the word. Um, we never anticipated or thought that, but it definitely worked to our advantage. And, and it and wasn't just the streaming aspect, though, right? It was also this idea that you would put out a season all at once. Kevin, in an interview, said that you have a theory for why that has been so pivotal to the success of streaming programs, that you can get it all at once. And I just wonder if you can share that, just what that's... Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we got credited a lot for that, but in the reality, is it wasn't us. I mean, DVD Box Set started that. But we were the first to release that way. Mm -hmm. We never thought or really knew when we were doing the first season of how we were. There was talk about maybe we'll release them all at once. But then, you know, it was thinking like, well, they'll just release like every week like anybody else would. But Netflix, they had the data and they knew how their consumers consumed yeah. the content. And they came to us and said, we think we want to release it all at once. And from early on, they always said, you guys do what you do best and we'll do what we do best. And so we're like, okay, you guys do what you do best. And so we agreed with it and went along with it. And, and actually how we even shot it though, we shot and we still shoot like a big movie. And that's why they're not called episodes, they're called chapters. Mm. And we've kind of adapted into it as like, why not do it that way? It's like when you give somebody a book, you don't give it to them a chapter at a time. <laughs> if you, you take the whole book and you're reading it and you're enjoying it, you keep reading. And you want to read three or four or five chapters, you read three or four, you might want to read 10 chapters. Or It's also what the music industry missed, right? This is mm -hmm. because you just give people what they want. Give the people what they want, how they want it, and a reasonable price, and they'll more than likely pay for it rather than steal it. Right. And I've been a big proponent of that. That's why this whole screening room thing yes. that's happening now. Yeah, what do you think? I've been preaching and saying that for years, that we need to go day and date. And it's controlled too much by the movie theaters. Movie theaters, the experience is not what it should be. And the society that we live in now, where people are so used to time shifting and DVR, being able to stop and start when they want to, they're saying $50 and people are going, oh, it's too expensive. I disagree. I think it should be 80 or 100 or, and if it's a bigger and more in-demand movie, it'd have it be flexible pricing. And if the reality of it, though, is it ends up being cheaper for a lot of people because by the time you think where you go and you valet your car, park your car, you get popcorn is $20, you have to get a babysitter, you have to be there at 7.15, it's just that aspect of it is a pain in the ass for a lot of people. The theater experience will never go away. Right. It will always be there. But if I can stay at home and watch whatever movie came out last weekend, which I didn't go to the theater and didn't pay a dime at a theater last weekend, but the studios left money on the table that they could have had for me because I would have sat at home on my couch and paid that, maybe had a friend or two come over and that brings the cost down a little mm -hmm. bit for me. And then I can pause it when I need to get up and take a leak. I can pause it when I get, right. want to get up and get a beer. And I can sit on my couch in comfort. I don't have to have a babysitter. I don't have to drive anywhere. I don't have to park. And if I want to start it at 8.23, I started at 8.23, <laughs> as opposed to being somewhere at a specific time. Now, we're just coming off of CinemaCon. Obviously, mm -hmm. the theater owners, NATO, whatever, they have a very strongly held of different opinion. Of but course they do. Of course they do. Of course. But I want to read you a quote that you gave to THR not that long ago, but now it becomes poignant with the latest news with mm -hmm. relativity. You said, quote, Right now, the theaters have a stranglehold on the studios where they take a piece of the films and take concessions. If I ran a studio, 
I would flip that. You want to show my films? You pay me, and I'm going to take a piece of your concessions. And I would also release the films day and day to make them available for streaming and charge a premium, 50 60 70 $80, whatever the market will bear. Okay, so you now run a studio. Is this going to be part of the future? <laughs> I knew that was future? going to come up. Um, I hope so, yeah. I right. mean, obviously, I'm, I'm just coming in here now right. and getting my footing. Right. And I run a studio on the creative side, less on the distribution side. But, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely for It's a priority for you, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's not something that I'm going to be able to change overnight. Right. But as the opportunities make themselves available, I'm definitely going to push that way wherever I can. How does anybody kind of overcome the theater resistance? In the sense that they're never going to go along with this. And we saw Harvey tried in partnership with Netflix with Crouching Tiger 2, mm -hmm. and they just blocked the hell out of it because they said it's... it's it's, it's an going to come, threat. and that's why something like Screening Room has a lot of industry players that are involved with it, and the people that are involved with it, they can see the forest through the trees, where the theaters, they really need to get with it. It's an old model. They can make it beneficial to them as well. I think they're just, it's how this industry has been for so long is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But you know what? Look at the taxi drivers. They're pissed off and they think yeah. Uber is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> but you and I probably think Uber is the best thing Absolutely. in the world. I go to Vancouver and they don't have Uber and I'm just like, what the hell's wrong with this place? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I don't think the oil industry is happy about Tesla. No. But guess what? Times change and things are changing and they change for the better. Mm -hmm. And it goes back. Give the people what they want, how they want it, and they'll pay for it. Right. So back to House of Cards. Season one, season two, tremendously acclaimed, got a lot of wonderful accolades and, and reviews and all of that. You guys took a little bit of flack for season three. Mm -hmm. Now it's season four, people are way back on board. But yeah. I wonder, how do you personally process that when you get, you haven't had too many times in your career where people have sort of resisted what you were doing. Mm -hmm. Was that yeah, oh, tough yeah, season? Well, I don't mean it that. <laughs> relative, you've, relative to most people, you've had a pretty great batting average. I'm just saying, like, with season three, with the way that happened, was that difficult? And did it have anything to do with Bo moving on? No, Bo was there for season four. Right, but I guess the reception is felt for a while. I mean, or, or yeah, I mean, maybe I, that was that was something I was a bit resistant to, as was Kevin. But I think he had had his run, and it's always good to bring in some fresh eyes yeah. on, on things. There wasn't like a battle or anything right, like right. that. It was kind of like it had run run its course. But Bo is, I mean, he's one of the most amazing writers out there, and. and for as young as he is, we have a lot more material to come from him. And believe me, I'm going to be hitting him for some. I'm, yeah. And now that I'm doing this, yeah, I'm kind it. of glad that he's out of House of Cards because right. maybe I can <laughs> get him on something of, of mine. Right. But um, as for people's reaction to season three, I mean, we can't. I mean, every season, or every, it's just like every episode. And every season has episodes that are a little weaker than others. So the same thing happens in seasons. And I think every series that we've ever fallen in love with, there's a season that, that lags. There's always going to be one or two that are amazing, and then there's going to be one that's not as amazing, and the others that are great. Right. And just the same as the episodes that are in there. But season four, which season people four are is, evaluating now, you're very happy with? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's our best season since season one. And season one, people, a lot of people discovered it later, just because yes. of how we, yeah. we released it. And so I think season four, we have a lot larger audience viewing it and so it's it's cool to get that response yeah, in, a, it, yeah. in a bigger way if you could imagine you know how long is this going to go on well we're definitely doing season five that's all we have a commitment to right. look i'll keep 
I'll keep doing it for as long as we can, as long right. as it's still good. Right. Uh, what I don't want to do is where we get into a situation where it ends up being season three and worse and worse and worse and right, worse, right, right. and it just kind of just. No. So I know we're going through at least season five, but if it deems a season six or or more, and everyone is game to do it, then yeah, I'd be down, but only if it hits the bar. And and continuing with next steps with things you're already doing with. 50 Shades, I know that we have 50, I want to get my titles right. Darker and Freed. 50 Shades Darker, 50 Shades Freed. Yeah. That's shooting now? Yeah, both we're, shooting we're shooting back concurrent. to back. I took Jamie Foley from uh, House, House of Cards, Cards who yeah. shot the most episodes of, uh, and directed most episodes of House of Cards. You got to have him on doing both of them. And it's actually worked because we, uh, we do two episodes at a time of House of Cards. And so it's similar in a and way. he's still involved with House of Cards? No, he's not doing any, because he was actually supposed to do the last episode of last season, and but I took him Clint to is. House of Cards. <laughs> yeah, I know we're in the middle of production now, but we've cross-boarded him. My favorite so. fact about Fifty Shades of Grey is that you guys had Octogenarian, I believe, and V. Coates, who people may know edited Lawrence of Arabia, just the loveliest woman, yep. edited Fifty Shades of Grey. How did that come about? I don't, I don't remember, actually. I don't know if it was a relationship she had with Sam or if Universal approached her. Right. I, I don't remember. But, yeah, I remember it was like was when we sat through the read-through and she was there. It was just Who's like, this lady? This is interesting. I mean, yeah. I knew who she was. Right, right, right. But I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> this is absolutely incredible. And she didn't seem to be flustered by any of it, huh? No. No, no and we actually we used another editor as well, oh, um, yeah, for... Deb. We had on also and then with the reshoots right. that we did as well. And you were... Just to one last Fifty Shades thing, you were reported to have been Peacekeeper on the first one. Does that have anything to do? Like, I guess El and Sam may have not yeah. hit it off right away. Was that reported correctly that you were kind of the man in the middle? I mean, I think a lot of it was reported inaccurately, which I really thought was kind of unfair, particularly because it's two women and they were like pitting them against each other. Look, every movie, every set, every project I've been involved in, there are differences. And it's just this movie has been such a target for headlines that it got blown way out of proportion in a lot of ways. So yeah, I mean, a producer is a peacekeeper on every project that they do. So I, I was a peacekeeper, but I don't think, I think I'm getting more credit than I probably should <laughs> because I think it was exaggerated more than right. it was. But yeah, I was a peacekeeper to an extent, the same right. as I'm a peacekeeper on any Every project project. that I do. Yeah. Last things, if I may, are just about relativity, which I think people are very curious about. And if I can just set the scene for a second, correct me if any of this is wrong, but so relativity is a studio that Rand Kavanaugh and Linwood Spink started in 2004, grew into the third largest mini major by releasing films like The Fighter, which got a Best Picture Oscar nomination, many others. Everyone sort of thought for a while and accepted what Ryan had put forward. There's maybe an algorithm for mm -hmm. success in Hollywood. Then obviously they ran into some issues that the stats I've seen, one billion in debt versus roughly 500 million in assets and went to bankruptcy. So before we talk about the new relativity, which I know everybody's <laughs> positive about, what do you think went wrong with the old one? It's, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. Yeah. But I don't think it's any different than a lot of others that have gone out of business. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a lot, there's a lot of studios that have come and gone in this town. And the fact that 
we were able to pull it out of bankruptcy now and and last night right officially well officially yeah, yeah last night legally it was done yeah two weeks ago whatever but yeah now all the money is hitting and the wires are going i you know i just think that the wrong projects were chosen i don't know anything about the algorithm monte carlo or any of that i never was involved or had anything to do with that my experience with ryan was he put money into social network and into 21 which were both very successful for us and, and for them. Those are the types of movies that I want to do. I think, like to think and hope that that's why he brought me in here, to do more movies like that. I think it's always bad to, as a person who produces content in the town, which makes all this content, it's always bad to lose a buyer or another place where that content can be both shop, developed, and made and distributed. So, I mean, to talk about the past, I don't, I don't really don't have much to say. I mean, it's... Everything's been said in the press that could possibly be said. There's nothing I can really add to that one way or the other. Good, but bad, he ugly. comes to you and he says, "We'd like to meet about this." And what I'm wondering is, reading just reading how, like, you've got a lot on your plate. Mm -hmm. And what was it that convinced you to say, like, "I believe in the future here"? Because what do you need this for? You don't. You, I don't. Yeah. And I actually said it in one of the interviews I did with the Hollywood Reporter yeah. that I would would never go run or work at a studio. Yeah. What attracted me to this, when I first got the call, I'm like, I bet you he's trying to recruit me in there. What else could he be contacting me about? And I initially thought, there is no way in hell that I'm going to do this. And then I came and talked to him, and then I started looking more into it. And I met Joe, who's our new partner in this. And what excited me about this was the fact that it is scorched earth. And why I wouldn't have gone into another studio. I would just have been a, a cog in the wheel there. And I wouldn't have been able to make a difference or change anything. With this, it's like the house burnt down, but the foundation is there. And now I get to build the new house and put in the new stuff that I like right. and what I want to do and build it the way that I want to build it. And Kevin's decision to recuse himself did that. Do you know what drove that? And also, did that give you any pause because you guys have teamed up so yeah. much? You know, Does that make you say, you know, first time you're kind of splitting up. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, well, we're still involved on some projects, the other existing yeah. projects that we have. And yeah, it is kind of like we're splitting up after 18 years. Right. But no, he, he originally was going to come in as uh, chairman, but as we started getting involved in the company and, and he started to realize how much it was going to take to do this. And he's still an actor, and that's where he gets his bread it's and butter very, from. Yeah, yeah. And I ran Trigger Street before, and Kevin had very little involvement as far as the day-to-day -day operations. This was going to be a completely different ballgame for him as far as, and I made it very clear. I'm like, look, you're taking an office here. You have to be here. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to be involved in, and you're going to have to weigh in and, and do. And I think the more that he started to think about it, he realized that I'm not going to have time to do this. And... Frankly, his salary was going to come out of my budget yeah, as well, yeah, and so yeah. I was, <laughs> I was supportive of it for you know a lot of reasons. But you know, look, he's we'll still maintain our friendship and relationship. Sure. I'm sure we'll end up doing projects with him, and he'll still personally produce things. Yeah, we still have projects that are carved out from our deal with, uh, or my deal with, yeah. uh, a relativity. So. Have a few projects at Sony still. We have the residence that we set up at Fox that Desolance Black is writing. We have another project at Fox with Ryan Murphy that we're doing together, uh, and, there, and a couple others that I'm yeah. spaced on right now sure. that we'll still. And but I'm turning more over to him. Yeah. 
where it's like now now you actually got to be more right, boots on the right, ground right, because right, right. the roles have sort of reversed that way. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's amazing in, I know it probably doesn't feel like a relatively short amount of time, but just how much you've accomplished here to the point where you're now running a studio at 42. It's not all I that I didn't common. beat Robert Evans. You didn't beat Robert <laughs> who's doing the podcast too, by the way, this oh, week. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. great. Well, I guess the question is just how do you feel that success has changed you for the better, for the worse, whatever, and what is left that you want to do that you haven't yet done? Yeah, you know what? People say that I've accomplished a lot and, and I've done a lot, and I don't really know what it is, and maybe my therapist could weigh in on this, but uh, <laughs> I don't really feel like that I've, I'm anywhere near hitting my stride, which I guess is a good thing, and I still feel like that I've got a long way to go. And I know some people would think that that's crazy, but I've also I've been very fortunate and very lucky, and to use a Robert Evans line that he stole from somebody else, is luck is opportunity met by preparation. Mm -hmm. But I've always added to that and said that luck is opportunity met by preparation, but the key is being able to identify the opportunities yes. and taking them. And taking this job, I know I'm taking the tiger by the tail in a lot of ways, but I've always been a risk taker and I've always said you've got to bet big to win big. And I think this is a great opportunity for me. It's a great opportunity for everybody that we're going to come in because I think we're going to build something great. It's going to be a struggle for a while just because we have a lot that we have to deal with, you know, from a lot that you mentioned in that previous question. But I think the future is really bright for what we're going to be able to do here. And if everything goes as I'm planning and seeing it, I think, I think it's going to be pretty amazing. So where do we have to go? I, I mean, look, I, there's a lot that I haven't accomplished. I've been up twice for Oscars, but never got one. Got see Although that now being head of a studio, I personally won't, but hopefully our films now will get in there at some point. You know, what, what is the definition of success or making it? I don't know what it is. It's a great place to leave it. I really right. appreciate it. Thank you so much for no that. No problem, man. Thanks. Thanks. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.